0: The first time I heard about tempered radicals was in a Stanford review document by Deborah Mayerson. Mayerson uses the tempered radicals to define people who work within their organization to challenge the status quo. But they're not loud or outspoken or even revolutionary. They're passionate about the things they believe in, yet they affect change ever so gently. They advance their causes and pull others along. Mearson also sees tempered radicals as everyday leaders who are quite catalysts who push back against prevailing norms, create learning, and lay the groundwork for slow but ongoing organizational and social change. A few weeks before Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, I happened to watch the Netflix documentary, RBG, which illustrates the life and career of one of the most influential people of our times. To me, RBG, the first Jewish woman and the second woman to serve on the Supreme Court, symbolizes tempered radicalism. She was a champion of gender equality and was an unlikely pioneer, a diminutive and shy woman whose soft voice and large glasses hid an intellect and attitude that, as one colleague put it, was stuff as nails. But as a Supreme Court justice, her every action got attention. Social media called her a demure firebrand. While she influenced the court to pass landmark judgments, her personal style was quiet and dignified. Her decisions have reflected more of an incremental approach instead of forcing people to pick and cling to a side. As a tempered radical, she developed the discipline to manage heated emotions to fuel her agenda. In other words, she strategically used the very things that stood in her way to help her win. She faced a lot of discrimination in the job market soon after graduating from the top of her class from Columbia Law School in 1959. Three factors she attributed this to, being a Jew, a woman, and a mother. Many law firms were resistant to hiring Jewish lawyers. And back in the day, law firms were unwilling to hire a woman. And she ended up taking a position as the associate director at Columbia Law School. She focused on Swedish civil procedure and even learned the language. In 1962, she went to Sweden and it was here that she saw the unthinkable. She saw a world that challenged every assumption she had about women in the workplace. She saw female judges presiding over a trial. 25% of the law classes were filled with women, while in the U.S., there were only two women on any of the federal circuits. And no one had reached the position of the Supreme Court judge. All this left a lasting impression on RBG in her crusade for gender equality. She was a woman and a mother. Women with kids were often discriminated against back in the 60s. In fact, during her time with Rutgers School of Law in the 1960s, she hid her second pregnancy by wearing baggy clothes, lest she lost her job. It was only after she was offered a tenured position that she started actively taking part in fighting gender discrimination. RBG also learned to frame her agenda in a language that had legitimacy over those in power. Ginsburg has stated that she sometimes felt like a preschool teacher when presenting her arguments to an all-male establishment. To them, there was nothing wrong with the way things had always been and that a woman's place was in the home. Ginsburg ingenuously couched the argument from a very different perspective. Where men wanted their mothers and wives to support them from the home, they wanted something more from their own children. She swayed them by pointing out that they were limiting the potential of their daughters, often changing the minds of men who wanted to see their daughters succeed. They began to see how women were limited and how much of a struggle it would be for their own daughters because so many men viewed women the same way. She built relationships with people inside and outside the court and had an unusually strong support network. RBG has proven that opinions and rulings do not dictate how people should treat each other. She had an unlikely friendship with the conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. Though they held opposing views, they found common ground in their shared love for the opera, formed an easy rapport, and bonded as true friends. RBG often quoted her mother-in-law when dispensing advice on building great relationships. In every good marriage, it helps sometimes to be a little deaf. When a thoughtless or unkind word is spoken, best tune out. Reacting in anger or annoyance will not advance one's ability to persuade. When drafting your own personal dissent, act. Don't react. Be it verbally or via email, think carefully about the words you want to use and do your best to leave emotion out of it. Speaking of marriage, RBG's strongest supporter was her husband, Marty Ginsberg. He supported his wife both at home and in their professional lives. He helped to impress upon their children how men should handle the chores and child rearing. Theirs was a fairly unusual marriage in that they were equal partners and all chores were divided equitably. Marty cooked and Ruth cleaned up. Ruth became the major caretaker of their home and children when Marty was intent on becoming a partner at a New York law firm for five years. Marty helped to lobby for her as she moved up the court systems, finally reaching the Supreme Court. He packed his bags and moved from New York to Washington, D.C. for her career. Many tempered radicals make a difference through little acts of self-expression, their dress, language, or leadership style. RBG was no different. The New York Times once called RBG's lace collars a gauntlet. It was a signature statement and a symbol with all sorts of meaning woven into each choice. She took the traditional black robe made for men and added to it a collar, to make it more feminine. What on the surface appears innocent was actually very radical. Women in the workforce in the early 90s were still dressing in men's suits to be taken seriously. Wearing anything that was too girly would undermine how they were received. RBG decided to wear lace, a very girly thing to do. Her message to the world, why could a woman not be girly and taken seriously too? RBG's scholars signaled her positions before she even opened her mouth, and they represented her unique role as a second woman on the country's highest court. Shining like a beacon amid the dark sea of denaturing judicial robes, Justice Ginsburg's collars were unmistakable in photographs and from the court floor. An image can speak thousand words, and RBG didn't miss an opportunity. She knew that every statement mattered, so she might as well imbue them with meaning even if they were only about the collar. She wore her majority opinion collar when speaking for the majority of the court. Her dissent collar, a spiky bejeweled necklace on a black band, she wore when she read her equally spiky dissents from the bench. After her death was announced on September 18 this year, many social media posts simply depicted a collar against a black background. The lace collar had done its job. As an effective weapon at challenging and antiquated, status quo. In the end, RBG succeeded not through aggression or violence, but through mental toughness, politeness, and persistence. In true ladylike fashion, she asked for what was fair and just for the oppressed and marginalized. During her career, she represented not only women who broke glass ceilings, but also men who were caregivers, each limited by the law as it stood. She made her adversaries her friends and won their respect through the sheer hard work she put into crafting her strongly worded dissenting opinions. Her life is proof that if you truly believe in change and in yourself, you can achieve it, even in the nation's most powerful court. Like she said, change comes from a groundswell of ordinary people, both men and women.